join me in welcoming Ron Strauss.
and I also spent two years as Chief Financial Officer of Fixed Income. In 2003, I set off on my own course, which eventually led me to return to my interest in academia. I stand here today more or less as a newly minted accounting PhD whose focus is business ethics, and specifically the ethics of the financial industry in light of the crisis of 2008. If there's one thing that I have learned during my years in the private sector, and surprisingly, I'm again, and not surprisingly, I'm again drawn to in my academic research, is that the ethics of accounting and business are vitally important and influence to a great extent whether a business will last, whether a business will be successful, or a business will fail. Businesses that take on an ethic of being too self-serving, too self-centered, are likely in the end to fail and may cause widespread collateral damage. The ethics of business are important all over the globe, across geographies, across nationalities, and across business sectors. As I now spend my time studying and researching and teaching business ethics, I get asked just what the subject is, since for many it's an oxymoron. Business ethics is a discipline that pursues questions regarding the relationship between ethics and business, and that relationship can be examined at different levels, at the level of an individual, reinforcing the concepts that individuals are autonomous and accountable, even in the face of strong organizational influences, at the level of an organization, analyzing how organizations go about managing their ethics. Do they just talk to talk, or do they walk to walk? And finally, at the societal level, thinking about responsibilities that organizations have to society, such as environmental, or more specific today, responsibilities for sustaining our financial system. The title of this talk is Ethics and Global Financial Crisis, Values Nourish Sustainable Markets. And that is true. But the way I arrive at the conclusion is by discussing the erosion of Wall Street values and how that erosion contributed to the financial crisis. In order to have sustainable financial markets, or financial markets that will not collapse, as ours nearly did in 2008, it is a necessary condition that the institutions that comprise the financial system have an underlying business ethic aligned with sustainability. I've come to believe that a breakdown in the ethics of Wall Street contributed to the financial crisis. And the good news is that what will emerge from the rubble is the recognition that the way to build a successful, sustainable financial services sector is to reinvigorate adherence to values that align the success of business with the interests of customers. The financial, interest, the financial industry lost its way by becoming consumed by self-interest, ever higher compensation and greed, using rather than servicing the interests of customers. Nevertheless, I'm optimistic regarding the changes that I anticipate. And for me, that's the silver lining to a most tragic and frightful period. The values, values that include adherence to customer interests and thereby societal interests, will again flourish in a reconstituted financial industry. Now some background on the financial crisis. Just The financial crisis sprang from a precipitous decline in the value of mortgage-related securities. The bursting of the mortgage bubble completely, completely wiped out payment levels. Other institutions, including Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns, 
narrowly averted total collapse through hastily arranged mergers. In the pursuit of in ever-increasing trading profits, virtually every major financial institution had massive exposure to the mortgage market relative to its capital base. And even those banks not in danger of imminent collapse suffered staggering losses, severely limiting their ability to engage in ordinary customer lending activities. Because of the financial sector's centrality to the capital and credit markets, the US government authorized the $700, $700 billion government bailout to prevent further failures. The global financial crisis and the prolonged recession that ensued raised complicated questions melding economics and morality. What are the economic and moral connections between Wall Street and the overall economy? How did we arrive at this point in our history where our most powerful financial institutions, the firms that house the valuation engine move, capitalism, had so much capital at risk that they undermined rather than promoted our free markets, our prosperity, and our social cohesion? When I think back to that fateful weekend in September 2008, when we learned that the financial system was in such deep trouble, almost three and a half years ago, I recall thinking, how could this have happened? What broke down? Who is responsible? And what could be done about it? How could this industry, the financial industry, which I admired so much, been part of it, and I thought had done so much good to facilitate the economic growth of America, end up on the cusp of being and causing a catastrophe were it not for unprecedented government action. Since that weekend, there's been a great deal of analysis regarding the factors that contributed to the crisis. We've all become familiar with terms that previously were most likely foreign to us. Subprime mortgages, CDOs, credit default swaps, derivatives, leverage, and government policies that contributed to systemic-wide expansion of risk and too big to fail. All those factors are valid. But in addition, I would like to emphasize the values of Wall Street. Did Wall Street values, the values of the financial industry, change over time and contribute to the financial crisis? And does a new set, let's call it a post-millennial set of values, need to emerge for Wall Street to again regain the trust of America. I do believe that a transition took place on Wall Street during the years preceding the crisis. The industry evolved from adhering to values and business models focused on putting customer interests first to an industry that thought it could succeed indefinitely by putting its self-interest, its proprietary trading interests first. Sadly, the pursuit of outsized trading profits from mortgage-backed securities, Wall Street lost its way as it disengaged from the traditional post-Great Depression values of customer focus and no value system replaced it. The contemporary Wall Street era can be characterized, perhaps even defined, by a shift that occurred when financial services firms began to conceiving of themselves and their business not as customer dependent, but rather as a series of transactions with third parties who came to be known as counterparties. Indeed, the use of the term counterparty as part of the Wall Street vernacular 
signal a disengagement from an interest in or dependency upon an ongoing relationship with people or institutions who used to be called clients or customers. In the days when investment banking, advising on mergers and acquisitions, private wealth management, or other, other customer-oriented financial services constituted the focus of large institutions. In the minds of Wall Street firms, counterparties exist to fulfill the firm's profit ambitions, ambitions that have become increasingly short-term and disconnected to the prosperity and sustainability of the general economy. The modern Wall Street professional seems morally untroubled, even when products such as derivatives, swaps, and other sophisticated financial instruments sold to counterparties are virtually assured to result in losses for those counterparties. This shift in values occurred as another seismic shift was unfolding. A number of developments increased the sheer scale and scope of Wall Street firms, including most notably the repeal of Plastic, which allowed investment and commercial banks to combine into single massive institutions. The largest financial institutions became what we now refer to as too big to fail, or as I like to say, too big to succeed. And finally, these institutions increasingly dependent on profits from trading, originating mortgage-backed securities profits, products to drive their profits. A gap was growing between Wall Street's prosperity and society's overall economic welfare as a result of the transformation of Wall Street's business model from mostly customer orientation with a relatively small proprietary trading component the one where trading operations came to dominate the profit structure and the attention of the brightest minds in the industry. These transformations in the business model have been taking place over decades. However, it took the financial crisis to demonstrate that the new business model of these relatively young financial behemoths posed a serious threat to capitalism itself. The U.S. Senate Levin Commission report investigated the financial crisis and concluded that the investment banks that engineered, sold, and traded and profited for mortgage-backed securities were a major cause of the crisis. In the lead-up to the crisis, in some cases as early as 2006, two years before, some firms came to understand that the value of the mortgages they were holding in their trading accounts would likely decline in the months ahead. It was during this crucial period when in the past it is likely that this insight would have benefited customers and the marketplace that firms undertook concerted efforts to reduce their exposures to mortgages by offloading to counterparties. The fact is that firms created and sold mortgage-related profits products in the pre-crisis period that they knew were designed to decline in value and create losses for the buyers. They did so to preserve their capital and to profit from what they anticipated was a precipitous decline in the value of mortgage-related securities. It was and continues to be troubling for many of us to learn that major financial institutions were involved in originating collateralized debt obligations and selling them to purchasers at the precise time that the firm was unloading them from their own capital account. Government, 
While government has an indispensable role to helping ensure the stability of the financial system, I believe that no amount of government can regulate or inculcate a moral fiber into Wall Street that again places the interests of customers at the forefront of business models. The preferred solution to the gap between the interests of the financial community and the interests of society should come from the private sector. The financial services industry has an opportunity to formulate a coherent moral response to the crisis. No amount of regulatory oversight will prevent another potentially more destabilizing crisis from occurring. The sustainability of capital markets ultimately depends upon the moral underpinnings of the people and the institutions that drive the markets. Without a radical transformation of ethics and values in the financial community, the system as a whole remains fundamentally unstable. It is thus in the interest of the financial professionals themselves to support and lead their own moral regeneration and a recasting of Wall Street values such that again the interests of customers and thereby society are protected. There are several examples of this currently underway including the emergence of new business models that begin with a passionate commitment and understanding of the importance of creating a business based upon successfully and profitably meeting customer needs. <coughs> One such business set up by two former colleagues of mine focuses exclusively on providing financial advice to individuals and families. They do not have a proprietary desk or any other lines of business that could conflict between what is best for them and what is best for their client. They've carefully constructed a business model that aligns business goals, incentive compensation, customer goals, and the goals of the capital providers. They're off to a good start and may represent one kind of a new financial service model that leads with an ethical imperative that orients the business. While this and other new business models are being formed, there's further fundamental change occurring on Wall Street. The Volcker Rule, part of Dodd Frank, Frank Act, and limits proprietary trading of major financial institutions, and is, I believe, an important step that will facilitate the change to a near new era of again placing customer interests at the forefront of the financial services industry model. Conclusion. Having grown up in the financial industry, I deeply believe that the industry's success is vital to our way of life. I was very disappointed when I came to understand the extent of the value shift on Wall Street that placed self-interest ahead of customer interest. Only then again by understanding that the core of the major financial institutions must be driven by customer-centric businesses will we again be able to be assured of the sustainability of our financial system. Those are the values that I believe nourish sustainable markets.
We are privileged to have with us Professor Abraham Brilov. I must preface this introduction by saying that this is just a preamble to Abe's remarkable career and accomplishments. After all, Abe had a 258-page biography published by Professor Richard Piccioni. Abe became a certified public accountant and consultant in accounting and taxation in 1944. He studied under Professor Emmanuel Sachs, and recognition of his accomplishments was named the Emmanuel Sachs Distinguished Professor of Accounting. He has been a prolific contributor of provocative articles in Balance. The latest was published in October 2011, titled, Where Did the $15.8 Go? The impact of his work on capital markets has been a focus of several scholarly articles in such prestigious journals as the Journal of Accounting Research, the Financial Analyst Journal, the Journal of Accounting, Auditing, and Finance. He's testified before the United States Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. His books include classics in forensic accounting, such as Unaccountable Accounting, Games That Accountants Play, More Debits Than Credits, The Burnt Investor's Guide to Financial Statements, and The Truth About Corporate Accounting. He's a recipient of the prestigious Graham and Dodd Award from the Financial Analyst Federation. In recognition of his achievements and devotion to the profession, he was appointed Binghamton University's first presidential professor. Most importantly, Professor Brilov is a wonderful friend of Binghamton University and the School of Management. At this point, I'd like to invite Professor Brilov and President Stenger for a very pre uh, special presentation of the University Medal. Dr. Burloff is the first person to have received both an honorary degree 
and University Medal from Baker University.
because since it was a leap year, I had to wait an extra day <laughs> from one lecture to the other. Now the theme for the presentation today is a very grievous one, very challenging. Private equity firms, unaccountable accountability, and anti-social
so that the $16 billion of debt that KKR had was put on the shoulders and the back of the Hospital Corporation of America and said to the HCA right at the outset, like Sisyphus, climb that hill with that burden of debt on your shoulders. But the $16 billion that they extracted was only the beginning. In 2010, they subtracted this a 4.3 billion and another 600 million to make it 5 billion last month. They extracted 5 billion by way of distribution. But then that's only the second stage. They then distracted about 3 billion as so-called tax provision that HCA was compelled to carry and to pay up to KKR. So there's another 3 billion. Then there was another 1.5 billion that was self-dug and eviscerated from the Hospital Corporation of America to buy out the shares of Maryland Bank of America because the Bank of America required those funds for their liquidity. And then only last October, this past October, they took out another $1.5 billion, ostensibly to buy the remainder interest in the joint venture that was being carried on between HDA and the Colorado Partners. My study of the numbers, and I'm prepared to demonstrate that in questions and challenges, that the 1.5 billion that they paid ostensibly to acquire that remaining interest, when probing the numbers, I maintain that it is nothing more or less than a payoff to another constituent in the consortium as yet unidentified. Now, before I go further, by way of full disclosure, last December, before some of these recent developments surfaced, because they only surfaced after the filing of the 10K February, representatives of MCA were told that the Brillhouse were questioning their tax and accounting practices and we were prepared to share our views with them. They refused to speak with us. So I did hope that someone from the company might by chance be here, or from the Institute or from which might be here. If they have any questions, either openly or otherwise, be very happy to share these views with them because of the fact that they are challenges to the very integrity of the enterprise. Now then, I've totaled up about 20 some odd billion dollars of evisceration of this hospital corporation, which, mind you, in effect, is a public utility. Where are the revenues coming from for HCA? These are not coming from bankers and others. 
accepting to the extent that they might be participants in Medicare, that coming from the soul of the society. And then, to be carried on this administration, with what consequence? All right, I'll tell you. You look at the line in the balance sheets of HCA, property plant improvements. From 06, from the very beginning, through December 11, there was no, no change in that balance sheet amount. No change in that balance sheet amount, which means that all that they were reinvesting in public plant and equipment was only that which was coming out of depreciation. That's the only cash flow that they were using to drag in or dedicated to the expansion of the very body skeleton of the corporation. Despite money, advancing technology at higher price levels, how can they conceivably rationalize that failure to invest and reinvest when they are presumed to have this dedication to the patients and the workers? Tens, hundreds of millions of persons are involved in this social contract, especially in the corporation, like the hospital corporation of America. What is it that tipped the government off to pursue HCA beyond the October writing? Well, one of course was that when we wrote, where did the $15.8 billion go? It went up as the clouds and evaporated. But second, an important Earmark. Last September 15th, when Bank of America sold back to the corporation for $1.5 billion the shares, the 20% interest which Melvin's Bank of America had in the HCA consortium. Then, in the press release from the corporation, they said, we invested $1 billion and we got $3 billion aggregate from our investment. In five years, in this kind of a public utility, getting a $2 billion profit on a $1 billion investment, $400 million benefit, 40% each year, which, of course, is nearly the Bank of America and the Lynch's share, the other constituent benefit corresponding. It said, where did the monies come from? And we sensed immediately that it had to come through the tax manipulation, tax flow, through the taxation. Now, share with you two exhibits. Really, I don't expect for you to understand them fully, not even if I spoke for two hours or so. But one of you to 
at, at least a reminder of the thrust of the remarks that I will be making. And at the session with the faculty that we did we draw together this morning, I asked them to really be fully familiar with those exhibits and to be prepared for questions that might come to them from the community, the bringing community. What is it that immediately got us going, as said, with those two challenges? Go back to the October article. Where did the $15.8 billion go? Why did they adopt pooling of interest accounting, which produced increased amounts for earnings per share for HCA? The article said as much as 30 to 70% of excessive earnings per share, and earnings before tax EBT. But going further, on those exaggerated earnings, on those exaggerated earnings, HCA was paying tax rates of 35 to 38%, sometimes 40%. So you had an exaggerated base of EBT, you had an exaggerated tax rate. We knew that Albert Kravis was not an Ambassadorian institution, wanting to pay as much as they possibly can to the internal abuse. The answer, therefore, is in that Exhibit C, because the tax collector is not the internal revenue service for HCA. Instead, Colbert Kravis was the tax collector for HCA. So the greater the amount of the tax that are paid upwards or upstream, as you say in Europe, the greater was the benefit to KKR. Now then, we now know where the 15.8 there went. Colbert Kravis was able to take the tax deduction from the, ups, uh, the increased tax basis derived from that 15.8 billion, so that to take this as a conclusionary statement to that. Colbert Kravis got $3.3 billion in taxes retained by it and not paid up to the internal revenue service. Now when you share this concern, November and December, with important representatives of the financial media, they would say, quite uniformly, but isn't that a, what the tax law permits? Isn't that what the tax law provides? And we, they would say, we all know that there's a difference between uh, uh, accounting for gap and accounting for taxes. And so, yes, you're going to have that difference where Kate Colbert Travis has taken advantage of the taxation that's being upstream, but isn't that the law? Fortunately, in that juxtaposition here, Exhibit C, 
Judge Stanley spoke to honor the end of this lecture series on two occasions. In 1988, and then 20 years later, in 2008, Judge Stanley Sporkin, in the year, I think it was 1990, promulgated that decision as a judge in the district court, in the federal district court, with the district of Washington, D.C., where corresponding phenomenon was involved where Charles Keeley, who controlled the Lincoln Savings and Loan, was creating bonus income at the Lincoln SNL level so that the taxes from Lincoln Savings and Loan were upstream to, to, upstream to Charles Keeley for Charles Keating then to retain because Charles Keating had acquired some corporations with false carryovers. So the exact were close to what you had in the KKR HCA situation. Judge Sporkin lambasted it. Charles Keating writing an opinion about 20 pages long, which I heard. My colleagues, the accounting profession, academic or otherwise, to read as to their failure to really identify what was going on. And it is in that exact same vein that I now would criticize Ernst Young most severely. Now, Exhibit A is somewhat more exotic and esoteric. I will give only one paragraph possibly to that. That whole cockamamie phenomenon referred to as the deferred tax accounting is esoteric but critical. They fantasized that there were three billions of dollars of earnings on which taxes had to, would have to be paid because of the fact that there would be three billions of earnings. So they set aside one billion dollars as the deferred tax, 35% on three billion, and turned over that one billion dollars to Colbert Travis Roberts to hold as a collateral account. Why? Why was this $1 billion set aside during the four years when they were still private? Direct answer. To guarantee that corporate Kravis Roberts would get an additional $1 billion from HCA during the two succeeding years from October 2000 10 through September 2012 would guarantee and collateralize that they would get that $1 billion over the next two years. One half billion for the year ending September 2011 and the other half the year ending 2012. But then as it happened, a crisis evolved in December 2011 
I won't go into depth and so on. But Christ has evolved. What have they said? It's a panic. That which we contemplate having with respect to that $500 million for the year from October uh, 2011 to September 2012, we have to get out of that, compress it all into December 2011. We've got to make all of that half billion dollars for the year. Why? I suspect, we suspect, that one or the other of the remaining consortium, possibly being capital, said, we want out and we're going to dump our shares, even for a second of your other life. I mean, this is what it is that we just surmised. Have no factual basis for it. Or if one or the other said, we want out. Now, if any one of them went out, that tax share arrangement, which would have permitted the upstreaming of that half million dollars per year in 2012, would fail. And they do. So they therefore put everything into the December quarter while they still had the tax share arrangement. And then they did something else. We declared a $2 per share special dividend in February. Why? Because before KKR departs, mind you, this is surmisal. Not that the $2 this year is surmisal. $2 special dividend was going to be paid in February. Why? Because the consortium still had 300 million shares in February. And they wanted that additional $600 million before they took their leave. Again, it really hurts to say all of that. In view of the fact that especially Sarbanes Oxley says that first meal and management of ACA, you've got to swear on the road that the system of internal control is there and functions effectively. Otherwise, tell us why not. We didn't see any exceptions, at least. Can't look for that in the 2011 10K, but no exceptions in the 2010. Where could they say that the internal control system at HCA was functioning when it was HCA was doing everything at the command of KKR at Al. How could they swear, or is it merely robot signing? No one signed, they just had a machine signed. Just one concluding sentence, except to say, I love you, and sorry to put transfer my burdens for myself to you with these presentations. But I want to go back to the first lecture from Professor Sidney Davidson, who left us a few years ago, where he concluded, as he began, with a quotation from the great Professor Goethe a quarter of a millennium ago, just about the time of the revolution in the both of nations, where Greta said, double entry bookkeeping is the highest invention of the human mind or the human spirit. Double entry, he said, we 
everything is controlled in those columns. But Goethe was also the author of that tragedy, if it's so, of Faust. And there is where Faust turns to HCA. Because we all know the Faustian bargain <coughs> phrase, selling your soul for a particular objective. And so it is, while double entry accounting is of the finest invention, nonetheless, sadly, we find the Faustian dialogue going on much too often in way too many sectors accountancy, law, politics, economics, wherever it is, journalism, and so on. Selling their souls, and when the, those who are bearing the burdens of that Faustian bargain are hundreds of millions of persons around, is what it is that calls for all of us to recognize the important interplay between business, economics, politics, the interplay with communication, with the sciences, with every single discipline that you could chart on that broad spectrum. And that, that is the very beauty of Binghamton University and the School of Management. Because whether it be finance, accountancy, economics, all are subsumed into a full education within the liberal arts. That is the beauty of this institution. So thank you so much for all the many, many privileges that you've extended to me the many honors that you bestowed upon me, they are all the most important sense of accomplishment that I've had. And again, thank you for sharing your burden with me.